I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. To get to the truth of the matter on this episode, we'll talk with Jude Blanchett. Jude holds the Freeman Chair in China Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Previously, he was Engagement Director at the Conference Board's China Center for Economic and Business in Beijing, where he researched China's political environment with a focus on the workings of the Communist Party in China and its impact on foreign companies and investors. Thank you for being with us today. This week, China celebrated the 70th anniversary of communist rule. In Tiananmen Square, there were big parades, a light show. We saw uh, weapons, including an ICBM. But in Hong Kong, in stark contrast, some of the worst riots yet after a summer of violent protests. Our favorite question on this podcast is simply, what is this all about? Yeah, it was quite striking, the different narratives that you saw on display yesterday. Up in Beijing, you saw the epitome of Communist Party control, right? So you had the streets were completely emptied for the weeks leading up to the event. Uh, People who had been living in buildings along the Chang'an Avenue, the Avenue of Eternal Peace, had been told to move. Uh, so that there was no risk whatsoever uh, of any political unrest. Including some reporters who were kicked out of their apartments. Absolutely, U.S. reporters were kicked out of their apartments and told they had to move out. And then you go down to Hong Kong, where you see the city for you know decades. We'd been thinking of it as a, a bastion of stability, of economic order, of economic freedom. This is where multinational companies uh, set up operations when they want to be trading into China, and it was chaos. We saw uh, unprecedented levels of violence on both the the protesters, but including we saw the use of live ammunition by police officers. An 18-year-old protester was shot in the lung yesterday. So what it showed to me is, despite all the power that the Communist Party has domestically, we saw power is different from control. And in Hong Kong, we saw a city spinning out of control. You know, I saw the handover of uh, Hong Kong in 1997. We took Face the Nation over there and broadcast from there when the British handed it over. And it was quite an impressive thing that we saw unfold. People wondered, would this really happen? Were they going to be autonomous in Hong Kong? How much would the uh, communist government allow? It worked fairly well over the years. There were some problems here and there. Why now? What what happened here? What caused this current problem that we have? I think we'll look back 10 years from now and have a, a better understanding of all the complexities of this. But at least in the first draft of history, which is what we're talking about now, we see the essentially the smashing together of two trajectories. One was on In Hong Kong, you've seen this extraordinary set of economic anxieties and concerns that have been mounting over the past 15 years, let's say. 
uh, separate from this issue of Communist Party control, right? You've just seen that median house prices are essentially 20 times the median income in Hong Kong. So all the issues of economic anxiety, income inequality, access to jobs, access to education, affordable housing, all these economic concerns have been rising and building. And again, remember, Hong Kong is essentially a small island with not much property that's owned by a few key companies or oligarchs who are in control of this. And so those frustrations now have collided with a second set of frustrations, which is certainly since the rise of Xi Jinping, the, the current general secretary of the Communist Party of China in late 2012, there's been a more rapid erosion of this idea of autonomy in Hong Kong, which was, you, you mentioned the 1997 handover, the basic core agreement there was Hong Kong will be given a period of 50 years where it will have, as they call the formulation, one country, China, two systems. The mainland system, where the Communist Party has direct control, and Hong Kong, where it's given, quote, high degree of autonomy, right? So you'll still have independent judiciary. They'll still be setting the laws. They'll still have some vote over who the political leadership is in Hong Kong. And that was supposed to last till 2047. Problem is, after Xi Jinping, many in Hong Kong came to believe that 2047 was, that was collapsing in, and that really there was full assimilation into the mainland much more quickly. And so these two currents or these two threads, I think, really came together around 2013, 2014 with the big umbrella movement protests, which erupted then over the issue of who gets to elect the political leadership. And without going too much into the detail there, that 79-day protest dissipated or ended. And from Beijing's perspective, they thought, good, we're done with that problem. What they didn't understand is that those grievances were continuing to, to build. And that erupted early in this summer when the Hong Kong government put forward a very controversial extradition bill that would potentially subject uh, Hong Kong citizens to being extradited up to the mainland where you have a judicial system run by the Communist Party, and there was just ferocious uh, outpouring of, of dissent. And that essentially was, was the spark of this most recent round of unrest. You know, I remember when George Shultz was uh, Secretary of State, and we were on a trip to Asia at one point, and we were talking about Hong Kong, and he said, there will always be a Hong Kong for the simple reason that everybody needs Hong Kong. What would be the impact if the uh, communist government in the mainland took over Hong Kong and it no longer was what it is today? What would be the impact of that? In the immediate, Hong Kong used to play an extraordinarily important economic role for China, right? And therefore, it played an extraordinarily important role for any U.S. business or company that was looking to operate in China. If you go back to the handover in 1997, Hong Kong's GDP was about 18% of mainland China's GDP. Now it's about 2%. So the economic role of Hong Kong in facilitating trade and business in the mainland has really deteriorated. Hong Kong was also the, the bastion of financial capitalism within the Asia-Pacific region. But again, now you have alternative, uh, you have competitors, right, in, in Singapore, for example, or Tokyo or Seoul. So the impact of the quote-unquote loss of Hong Kong from a financial perspective would be less than it was 10 years ago. That being said, right now we're having this large discussion in the United States about strategic competition. And, and one of the threads of that is where is China going? What's China's political evolution? A naked and aggressive takeover of Hong Kong by the People's Liberation Army or the paramilitary forces, the People's Armed Police, once and for all, I think, would fix for us 
what China's trajectory looks like. Now we're really returning back to a Cold War narrative of a communist government that is increasingly aggressive. And it will be hard for forces within the US government here to be arguing for strategic patience on China. Give it time, don't press too hard. That will become a very, very difficult narrative in, in the wake of a takeover. Jude, everyone around the world was waiting to see yesterday what Xi Jinping would say, if anything, about Hong Kong. and. One of the things he said was, no power and nothing can stop China's rise and China's progress. What did you make of that? It's very Xi Jinping. It's very Communist Party. We should expect, and and, uh, a party leader and and party leaders have been making similar utterances since Mao Zedong. This is just part of the political culture, and it's like an American president talking about the strength of our democracy and our values. It's partly a truth, but it's partly rote. It's just part of political speech. Unfortunately, though, I think from Xi Jinping's perspective, those domestic imperatives about projecting strength to the country are now reinforcing international narratives of concern about where China is going, a point I was just talking about. Xi Jinping was clearly talking to, as he called in Chinese, his tongbao, those from the Chinese nation, of which he was including Hong Kong. But that was a threat. And the display of military uh, equipment was also a threat, not only to Hong Kong, but also a signal to the United States about the the unshakable power of this political system and military capabilities under, under the Communist Party. But... I think if he thought that that speech was going to fundamentally intimidate Hong Kong, if anything, it probably exacerbated. And if he thought that was going to shake the United States, unfortunately, I think the effect will be to reinforce more hawkish voices here in the United States who are saying now, see, we told you so. So what can the United States do? What are our policy options? I think, Andrew, you know we had some of the major figures of the protest movement in Washington, D.C. a couple weeks ago. We had them here sitting at this table to talk about Hong Kong. For your podcast, Hong Kong on the Brink, which we love. It's one of CSIS's newest podcasts. Well, you're a co-host, so you would say that. Yeah, well, um, you know, that's the way we promote things around here, Bob, right? Right. They see two two things the United States can do, essentially. One is a specific piece of legislation, which is now making its way through both the House and the Senate, which is called the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. This is a, um, a multi-part piece of legislation, the most important piece of which is potentially revoking um, Hong Kong's separate trade status. And just as a quick aside here... 1992, uh, the United States passed the Hong Kong Policy Act. This is the wake of Tiananmen Square. The United States government is looking for ways to to get tough on China and essentially say to China, never again. We're going to raise the cost threshold for actions like what what you did in Tiananmen Square. And part of that was saying, okay, we know the handover is coming up in 1997. What we're going to do is we're going to take you seriously on this 50-year pledge of of semi-autonomy, and we're going to treat Hong Kong separately in terms of trading status from the mainland China. It will enjoy privileges you don't because it's a freer rule of law-based economy. This newer piece of legislation is saying we may revoke that. Because if Hong Kong is de facto and de jure not much different from the mainland, why the heck would we treat it differently? The protesters want to see this legislation move through because they think this will be a powerful signal to Beijing of, we, the United States, take this issue seriously, we're watching this, and we will enact enact a penalty upon you if you take this step. The question, I think, for us is, do we, do we think that will be a meaningful piece of legislation to deter, deter Beijing? And my, my own sense is, just looking at how Beijing is thinking about the issue of Hong Kong and this core issue of political stability and territorial integrity, of which Taiwan and Hong Kong are fundamental red lines for the Communist Party, 
They're certainly taking into account this piece of legislation, but I think it's not one of the most important things they're thinking about. They've got more serious and tractable issues like how do we deter the protest movement from continuing to build? If we did, did use force, how would we contain that and what would our exit ramp be? And here the United States, I think, just isn't a central feature of that debate. So the young man who was shot is in stable condition. We're looking at this with eyes in the United States. This is horrifying because the protests you know, look like this is what would happen in New York City if there were some kind of mass protest like this. And we're looking at it with pretty shock and awe and horror in our eyes. What is the United States going to do? Is it, If there's no way we can confront China on this, are we going to stand by and watch this happen? This is a discussion which is happening in the Pentagon, in the State Department, in the White House, and up on Capitol Hill. Is Remember, we've, we've got a lot of moving parts here in our relationship with China. And there are some who are, in a way, would see use of force in Hong Kong as the final green light for essentially a full frontal, let's break the relationship, let's, let's economically decouple, let's get much more tough on sanctions, let's take away Hong Kong's unique trade status, let's forget this fiction of one country, two systems. There are others, I think, who are cautioning more restraint because it's difficult enough as it is to figure out what is our position on China? What is our long-term position on China? Do we want to move forward the possibility of conflict to tomorrow? Or do we want to find an off-ramp with the United States where we can both stand up for our own values, recognize China as a strategic competitor under the Communist Party of China, but nonetheless trying to avoid conflict? The Communist Party is primed to look for U.S. intervention. It's already blaming what it calls black hands, which is a, which goes back to the, the Maoist period of it assumes the United States is orchestrating the events in, in Hong Kong. Um, it looks at the bill, the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, as just as confirmation that the United States is meddling in what China sees as an internal matter. Anything that we would do to up the ante, and again, I'm not making a judgment on if we should or if we shouldn't, we must recognize that this is there's nothing more central and, and a core conviction of the Communist Party than external meddling in what it sees as an internal matter. So if we do sanction, let's say, uh, party officials who are involved in this, right? Like we're doing with the Magnitsky Act in Russia, uh, we have to recognize that the blowback on this from China would be significant. And uh, China's not a, a paper tiger, to again quote Mao on on this. I would say, you know, uh, you you illustrate so accurately, in my view, this is not something happening in isolation. This is something that affects our overall attitude and policy toward China. How would you describe? Number one, our relations with China right now, and what is exactly our policy toward China? Because as <laughs> almost anybody that I talk to in in the foreign policy fields will tell me, managing the China relationship is perhaps the most important part of our future. We're in many ways at the very early stage of this question of what is our relationship with China, partly because any transition from one paradigm to another, it takes a while to figure out what the heck the new paradigm is. And if I can very superficially describe the old paradigm that we're emerging from now, Mao Zedong dies in September 8th, 1976. Uh, two years later, in December of 1978, we see the firm consolidation of power under this diminutive four foot eleven Sichuanese guy named Deng Xiaoping. And for the next couple of decades, we came to define a strategy of, 
economic engagement, people-to-people engagement, military and diplomatic engagement with China as a way of essentially coaxing China out of its communist shell. And through these interactions and engagements, we thought that it would have a, a fundamentally, not, not liberalizing force, I think um, folks understood it would still be under party control, but at least um, we'd see the evolution of China and its political and economic and military behavior change to a more manageable trajectory. No one believes in that paradigm really anymore. We recognize that both we've changed and more fundamentally China's changed. You talk with your Chinese friends and they will say in many ways, that was wishful thinking on the US. We never said we were gonna move in that direction. So now what we're trying to figure out is, okay, we have the Communist Party is back in many ways. The mask is off. Xi Jinping is not afraid of the sickle and hammer. They're no longer talking in Beijing about meaningful reform to let's say the state-owned economy. It's more open and transparent on the party's view of the private sector, of industrial policy, of where it sees its military force and where it should project it. All of these have meant we've smashed the old paradigm. My stab at what the new paradigm is, is the U.S. and China relationship is really the, the sort of epitome of a much larger structural shift, which I think happened around 2016. Um, not only do we have Brexit, not only do we have the election of, of Donald Trump, we had significant changes globally. Concerns about technology and, and their effect on national security, uh, concerns about globalization and the economic impact it has on, on localities, manufacturing, uh, economic anxieties. These are happening across the board. Uh, rise of populist nationalism. All these forces, I think, really came to a head in 2016. The United States-U.S.-China relationship is kind of the accelerant. It's the rocket booster on us. It's the biggest single driver of this new paradigm, but it doesn't subsume it. And the same discussions we're having about China here in D.C., if we were in Berlin, Canberra, Ottawa, we'd be having much the same discussion and many of the same anxieties. What do we do about Huawei you know, and, and 5G? What do we do about technology? Um, what do we do about globalization? What do we do about concerns over hiring someone from China who may be uh, engaged in corporate espionage? So all these discussions are ongoing right now, but I think moving forward, all the big fundamental drivers of economic growth, globalization, cross-border mergers and acquisition, the way you hired people, how you develop technology and distribute it, all those are now being brought under the lens of a national security concern by, by governments around the world. That's what's driving policy now. It's no longer economic efficiency, globalization, supply chains. It's now looking about control uh, over over national security and how we sort of reassert that reassert that control and that to me will be the sort of operative driver uh, of policy moving forward. You mentioned what do we do about Huawei? To me, this is one of the hardest problems that we face right now. Tell us what <laughs> Huawei is and what are our options there. Yeah, one of the frustrating things about working on China now is you've also got to be a technology expert. This is a new evolution for anyone looking at these, but to your point of your question, Bob, it's it's technology is such a, a fundamental driver. To quickly connect this to Hong Kong, if you look at the Human Rights and Democracy Act, a core part of that is supplying of surveillance technology by U.S. companies to Hong Kong authorities and, and looking for a way to stop technology moving from the U.S. to Hong Kong to be used for nefarious purposes. Again, we see this constant thread of technology and national security, how U.S. technology is developed and then deployed and used. Going the other way, though, is this question of this Chinese company, Huawei, which was started by a man named Ren Zhengfei. Huawei is one of the most important technology companies in China, um, nominally private. I say nominally because there's a debate on, in fact, how much de facto control the Communist Party may or may, may not have on it. It is 
the leading supplier of the full spectrum of 5G equipment. It has really no peer globally. And so this has created a conundrum where Huawei is active and operating in areas around the world in frontier technology, including 5G. There's not many replacements for it. And so you have governments around the world trying to solve this conundrum of what's the alternative to Huawei provided 5G equipment. What's and, the, what, and 5G is fifth generation. generation. Yeah. So, Bob, you're, you're already flexing. You're, you're stressing the outer bounds of my understanding of, of any of this. So I'll do what I saw you uh, guests on your show do so, so effectively, which is I'll say, it's an interesting question, Bob. I think the more important question we should be asking ourselves <laughs> is, so this issue of 5G and Huawei is really just early days, and we've got to get better about thinking of how we're going to process these questions moving forward. And part of that is, you know, driving that 5G question in Huawei, there's some economic protectionism here, right, that is masked by national security concerns and China concerns. We should expect that. But there also is a core question of folks fundamentally don't trust that Huawei is a private company and they think it's a proxy for the Communist Party of China. Guess what? We're going to have a thousand of these debates moving forward. And, and at the heart of that is your, is your question on what is, what is our policy on China? We've got to start having an honest discussion of how do we evaluate China's political system, its political trajectory. Inwardly looking, we've got to have an honest conversation about what do we stand for, uh, what are our values, and what are our bottom lines. And the problem is we're having this China discussion where China's in flux and in transforming at the same time where we don't have a, a strong sense of political coherence here domestically, and that's making this a harder to discussion to have. Any discussion you have on China competition – always revolves around allies. Well, guess what? We don't seem to be doing a great job on our alliance building and maintenance, right? Any question we have around China involves technology. Well, guess what? China pours more into technological R&D in a year than we've done over the past 10 years. So a lot of these are domestic questions about getting our own house in order. But the president at this point does not want U.S. companies to have any kind of connection with Huawei. Not only the U.S. president, I'd say there's a broad swath of the national security yeah. community here. And for, again, for, for the reason that if we buy their technology or they find some way to, to use ours or steal our technology or whatever, it, you have the possibility that they're building a back door into all of our technology, our electric grid, everything in America that's connected to a computer, and most yeah. things are. That's the inbound purchase of Chinese technology, the, the sort of the outbound side of it, which is U.S. technology being sold to China. The concern there is essentially this is a zero-sum proposition, that everything a U.S. company is doing to strengthen China economically is also strengthening it militarily. And if you view this as a strategic competition, I think the argument is, why the heck would you be taking our technology, right, that, that should be redounding to U.S. national strength and be giving it to someone who, if not an enemy, is a frenemy? So, Jude, what's next in Hong Kong? What's next for the protesters? And what's the next move for the People's Republic? So fundamentally, you've got both sides looking at each other with extraordinary mistrust and hostility, right? So from Xi Jinping's perspective and the Communist Party, they see this as a secessionist movement, which is illegitimate. They don't recognize the core concerns that the protesters have. Looking the other way, the protesters see a increasingly aggressive and distant governing authority through Beijing and the local Hong Kong government they have absolute disdain for, both because of its handling of this including police violence. We've got this stalemate now and where protesters feel the only way you keep the issue moving forward is increasingly radical behavior. Otherwise, this issue dies down. But that behavior then feeds into 
Beijing's feeling like this is spinning out of control. So the question now I don't think is, are we going to see a settlement? Because it's very hard to see who the actors involved in that settlement would be. Remember, this is a largely leaderless protest. Joshua Wong, who is the symbol of the protests in 2014, he may say he wants to have a dialogue with the Hong Kong government. He doesn't control this movement. right? He doesn't control the more radical elements of this. And some of this is 17-year-old kids. Yeah, well, a lot of it's 17-year-old kids. I mean, remember the, the protester who was shot was a, an 18-year-old. Yeah. To your question of where does this go next, I think, unfortunately, we need to be thinking about we're entering into a, a period of prolonged stalemate, but where one side, the protesters, is looking to always keep this issue uh, evolving and in, and in the news. And that means increased desperation. Six months ago, it would have been absurd to think about the Communist Party using people's armed police to really ramp up and, cr- and crack down on this movement, including Bob, those of us who've been you know, looking at communist movements over the broad arc of history recognize whether it's Hungary 1956, Czechoslovakia 1968, 1989 in Tiananmen Square, if they feel like they're backed into a corner, a communist party, an authoritarian political system will crack skulls. And so the question now for us is, to return to what we were talking about earlier, if violence is is used there, is the United States willing to really bring significant pressure on, on China and almost fast forward this issue we thought was down the road 10 or 15 years about the US and China on a, on a conflict collision? This is something we have to take very seriously. Agreed. Yeah. Because so far, China has dealt with this through Hong Kong's police have dealt with it. They haven't sent in the people's police. Right. That's a major escalation if they do that. It is. But we've we've seen even on its own, the police are in a difficult position because the and again, just to talk about the social media element of this. This is a conflict that's playing out on Twitter with two alternative universes. People who are supportive of Beijing or the or the Hong Kong government put up clips of the more violent protesters. And vice versa, the protesters put up the clips of the few police officers who are using more aggressive violence. If you sit in one or either of those worlds, but not both, you have completely different narratives about this. The protesters say, we're largely peaceful. There's a few bad eggs. The police say, we're largely peaceful. We've been showing a great amount of restraint here. Restraint, I think we can all agree, United States police would not show. There may be a few bad eggs or a few overreactions, but that shouldn't tarnish everything. So the social media element of this is really making it hard for all of us to get a good, accurate sense of what the situation on on, on the ground is and, and kind of who the aggressor is here. Well, thank you very much, Jude, for bringing us the truth of the matter. I have the feeling we'll be asking you to come back. <laughs> I'm sorry about that, because no reflection on you. You're an excellent guest. But just because this is such a serious matter and no one's quite sure where this is going or what the United States response uh, should be. Well, thanks so much for being with us. We'll be back next week. I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. And if you want to hear more about Hong Kong, listen to Jude on Hong Kong on the Brink, wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 